everybody, we'd like to invite you to visit South Dakota through the eyes of local Lou. She'll take you on a tour of lots of things to see and do. So enjoy your virtual visit through the eyes of local Lou. Welcome to the Local Lube Podcast. Today, I'm beyond interested in this historical marker. I spent several nights up way past this night owl's bedtime doing my amateur level researching. So many newspaper clippings, a few great books, some articles, and genealogy. Well, I can't wait to share it with you, even though it means I'm going to be sleepy at work later today. Buckle up, Buttercup. I have a doozy for you. Historical Marker, The Hanging of an Innocent Man Early Day Justice, Minnehaha County, Dakota Territory, overlooked innocence when gallows were erected near this site for the hanging of Thomas Egan, a pioneer immigrant farmer from County Tipperary, Ireland. Egan settled in Dakota in 1876. Egan was arrested, tried, convicted, and hanged for causing the death of his wife, Mary. She was murdered in September 1880 on the family homestead farm 20 miles northwest of Sioux Falls, north of Hartford. She was found in the cellar of their sod home, dead from a bloody beating. The suspicion of neighbors, which promptly spread through the community, centered on Egan. He was immediately taken into custody and placed in jail in Sioux Falls, where he remained until the hanging. Many years later, a surprising revelation would prove his complete innocence. Mary Hayden Lyons was a widow with a five-year-old daughter, Catherine, when she married Egan in 1866 at Madison, Wisconsin. When the couple later moved, Catherine remained behind with relatives. Three sons, Sylvester, John, and Tommy, were born to Thomas and Mary Egan before Catherine rejoined the household in Dakota Territory. Soon thereafter, on November 23, 1879, Catherine married a neighbor, James Van Horn. During the trial, James and Catherine Van Horn testified for the prosecution, a fact which angered Egan greatly. When the day of sentencing arrived, Territorial Judge Jefferson P. Kidder asked Egan if he had anything to say. With an angry scowl, he replied, Judge, I have nothing against anybody in the court or anybody around the country except the Van Horns. They betrayed me and may the curse of God be upon them. I can stand it, sir. The law may not reach the Van Horns, but the curse of God will. Catherine Van Horn lived 45 years with the words of her stepfather ringing in her ears. On June 3, 1927, on her deathbed at age 65 in Seattle, Washington, she confessed that she had killed her mother. She wrote, Back in South Dakota in the early 80s, I killed my mother. We quarreled and I hit her again and again over the head until she died. No one ever suspected me. My stepfather, Thomas Egan, was hung for the crime. He died vowing his innocence. It took three drops from the hangman's trap door on July 13, 1882, to end the life of Thomas Egan. On the first drop, the rope broke, 
and Egan was carried back to the platform. On the second drop, a deputy inadvertently broke Egan's fall, and the hanging man was dragged to stand on the trap door for a third time. Following the third drop, the official physician declared him dead. Historical marker, the hanging of an innocent man, located outside the Old Courthouse Museum, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. When I read this historical marker outside the old courthouse museum, a couple came along and started to read it as well. And I suggested to them, don't read the back of this one. It's pretty frustrating. Neither of them seemed really interested in having a conversation with me about it, so I moved along. I'm wondering if they found it to be as frustrating as I did, or maybe I'm putting myself too much into the scenario. The whole thing is the story, it isn't a story. It's a real human that was hanged for something that he didn't do, and it almost feels like the fact that the hanging was botched until the third time's the charm. It feels like an omen to me. I don't know how one could stop a hanging in progress, but continuing to hang a guy over and over again seems pretty insane to me. It also makes me think, what about the witnesses? Wouldn't that be something to hear what people that witnessed it thought? Not exactly at that moment, but maybe later in their lives. Watching an execution performed three times on one person has to leave a mark. Let's get to know the Egan, Lyons, and Van Horn families. Mary is the heart of our story. The moment her heart stopped beating, the story really takes off. Mary was born January 26, 1835, in Ireland, to her parents, Edward and Elizabeth Hayden. Edward, Elizabeth, and Hayden, gosh, none of those seem like very Irish names, so I'm wondering how much family lore is going to play a part in her early genealogy. I don't find anything about these people. Possibly Mary was born in Ireland with her family, uh, but maybe maybe they just weren't from there. It doesn't really matter. Let's not get too distracted by where the Haydens are coming from, and let's focus on where Mary goes. Mary goes to America. Mary meets Michael. Michael and Mary marry. Michael and Mary Lyons settle in Wisconsin area at least long enough to have a child, Catherine Lyons, when Michael dies as mysteriously as he enters the picture. Poof. Mary's a widow, and she has a kid. Mary isn't single too long, though. She marries Thomas Egan in 1866. Catherine is five when all this happens. In the next 10 years, the family grows by three boys. Thomas, the leader of the Egan family, decides to move to the Dakota Territory. So the whole family gets uprooted. Well, the whole Egan family gets uprooted. Mary, Thomas, the three boys... They move, but Catherine, about 15, stays either in Wisconsin or Iowa. It seems like it was possibly Iowa, but I've seen it both ways. Either way, she doesn't come to the Dakota Territory. <laughs> they, they leave. She remains. The Egan family settles in just north of what is now Hartford, South Dakota. They have a sod home, pretty on brand for the time period. Their sod home has a nice cellar for keeping food storage. And maybe a few family secrets. By 1878-1879, Catherine has rejoined the family. And at her perfect age of 18, just so happens to, within a year of moving back with the family, marries James Van Horn. And Catherine now moves from the Egan household to the Van Horn household. But she doesn't have very far to go. It's right next door. 
November 1879. That means we're getting closer to September 12, 1880. The clock is ticking, and Mary only has 10 months to live. Mary Egan wakes up on the morning of September 12, 1880, and probably spent the morning doing what all pioneer women did, cooking, cleaning, tending, sewing, running a sod household like a well-oiled machine. This day was different. It was different in a way that she was alone on the homestead. Catherine knew her mother was alone that day. Tick-tock, Mary. Your time is up. Catherine went to talk to her mother. We don't know what about. We don't know if the tools of Mary's destruction were there already in the home or if Catherine brought them. Outlawed Tales of South Dakota by T.D. Wells goes into the most details I was able to find on the trial and the confession of Catherine. And together, it's easy to piece some things together, but much will remain a mystery. We're not able to determine the intent, not only of Catherine, but of the other Van Horns. Oh, that's right. Catherine's husband, James, and his father, William, wanted the timber claim that Thomas Egan had. William also happens to find the murder weapon casually in the woods, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Catherine goes to talk to her mother, knowing Mary is alone for the day at the sod house shanty on the prairie. Catherine admits they fought over what we don't know. We do know that it was taken to two graves. Mary knows, and Catherine knows, but we will never know. Somehow the verbal argument spirals, and Catherine full on assaults her mother, bludgeoning her with a picket pin. Once the rage stops, Catherine, now in a panic, shoves the hopefully dead body of her mother into the cellar and closes the trap door, and walks away into the woods between the homes where she cleans up and leaves the murder weapon. Those who saw Mary's body in the cellar described it as she were half reclined against the wall. Possibly that she was not fully dead when placed there and tried to get up before her last breaths escaped out of her blood-drenched body. In a December 15, 1881 Canton Advocate article, the crime scene, as it were, a few weeks prior to trial, were described. They said the house was deserted and gloomy, with walls in the cellar still covered in Mary's blood. The rest was overdramatic fluff. (laughs) That, to me, always sounds... In my head, like an old-fashioned radio show, murder seems to be written on the floor and the walls where this poor woman's bloodstains are. Something like that. Thomas, in returning home and unable to find his wife, gets his boys to help look for her. Per the same newspaper article, Tommy is the one who finds his lifeless mother slumped in a heap beneath the floor of the home. That's going to scar a kid. Since we do know that Thomas did not kill his wife, let's look at this. Canton Advocate article describing the evidence against Thomas solidifying his guilt, but in all reality, it's easily explained. The rope and stake still covered with hair and blood. The fact that Thomas aggressively asked the children, where is Ma? Then the clothes he was wearing were also soaked in blood and considered evidence of guilt, except those clothes only show blood on them because he held his dead wife. And those weapons were there because the murderer left them there. And he was yelling at the boys out of fear. Where was Ma? There's a reason for reasonable doubt. Things can be explained away. What a scary spot to be in when you're an innocent man. During the trial, almost 40 witnesses were called by the prosecution. One witness, William Van Horn, gosh, remember him? 
Van Horn? Yeah. James Van Horn's dad and business partner looking to absorb Thomas Egan's assets the second he goes to jail. Well, yeah, that guy. Also, just so happens to have found the picket pin, the murder weapon. And he kept it, only to surprise the court by showing it when he testified. It's pretty weird. It's impossible to tell if it makes him oblivious to Catherine being involved or complicit. Fancy word warning, picket pin, a short stake driven into the ground for tethering a horse. Did not know that. Now, do we think the picket pin was casually already sitting in the Egan's home when Catherine arrived to speak to her mom? Or did Catherine bring it? There's another thing. We, we just don't know. So let's get back to what we do know. Thomas's trial, after a long parade of prosecution witnesses, the defense decided not to have any. Bold move. We know it does not work out well, so it's a bold, stupid move. Jury was out long enough to take a vote and come back, essentially. Guilty. If I was able to look at the case without knowing the ending, what would I think if I were a juror? I do like to play devil's advocate and look at more than just what's presented information. But I do think the timing of the murder and how the body was found, it would make me suspect the husband. But not beyond a reasonable doubt. I have doubt, and it's reasonable. That being said, I'm imagining this from a world I've grown up in, knowing that women are completely capable of murderous deeds. What quickly hits me like an axe in the back is Lizzie Borden, having been on trial for the murder of her father and stepmother. But a great many did not think that a woman was capable of such a heinous crime. So, either notorious axe murderer or completely innocent. That's a pretty big swing there. Egan found guilty and sentenced to death. He now has seven months left to live. In a December 1881 Canton Advocate article, they reference Egan going on a 75-hour hunger strike, refusing to have, quote, his neck stretched at the gallows, end quote, and preferring to die in peace in his cell bed. For a guy with no options, I guess that was worth a shot. And 75 hours, hey, I, I would say hang in there, but yeah. So maybe Thomas Egan was a bad guy. I mean, almost 40 people attested to so much. But in that case, I'm going to remind you guys to consider the source. They were wrong about him being guilty. Has anyone actually seen him mistreat or beat his wife in person? Or are these rumors? Then you have the Van Horns. They have something to gain from this situation. And the youngest Egan boys... In a high-stress situation, I believe they could have been influenced by others. The only testimony that I'm inclined to believe is the oldest son, Sylvester, who was a teenager at the time and shared a story of stopping his father from further beating his mother one night. So if we consider that to be true, that makes him a bad guy. But does he deserve to hang for it? Regardless of whatever we think, Thomas Egan was hanged July 13, 1882 making him the first person executed in the state of South Dakota. Eric Renshaw from the Argus Leader reported in Looking Back, First Sioux Falls Execution took three tries that Thomas Egan was walked to the gallows at 9.34 a.m. and was hung for the first time at 9.35, but would not be pronounced dead until 9.46. In some ways, those 11 minutes for Thomas must have felt like an eternity, but I guess he's about to figure out what eternity feels like. You wonder if the first drop, when he didn't die, 
did he feel like God saved him? If he did, that feeling didn't last long. It was hopeless for Egan. Something was already set in motion, and nothing could stop it. Nothing did stop it. At the time of Mary's murder, a woman, inspired by the event, wrote a poem called Burning of the Egan Homestead. Yeah, that's right. That place burned to the ground. I wonder who started that fire. In the poem, Cynthia Warren writes, quote, We will never forget the day when first the tale was told that Mrs. Egan in the cellar lay a sail sight to behold. By her husband she was killed to get away she hoped, but her lifeblood there she spilled and he choked her with a rope. End quote. To that I offer my response. Many have forgot the day when first the tale was told. Mary Egan found dead. Her husband did it. Behold. Daughter Catherine was the real killer. To get away, she hoped. Two people dead because of her. Both choked with a rope. So what becomes of Catherine? Does she wash this blood off of her guilty hands by living a good life? Catherine becomes Kate. And Kate and James move to Washington State, where he is a very successful businessman. They have two children, Ray and Cassie. Kate's husband is considered to be the founder of Van Horn, Washington, and has multiple businesses, from sawmills and hotels. They all burn to the ground, and he collects insurance money. I'm not insinuating anything, as businesses often fell victim to fire at the time. But knowing his wife was capable of murder, it does seem something to consider. Maybe Kate was behind her husband the whole way, holding a match. And maybe her killing her mom was the accident that she claims, and the rest of her life was perfect. In 1920 census, 10 years after her husband James dies, Kate writes that she's the head of the household, and Ray and Cassie are listed as children. And that's about all that presented itself about the offspring from this wicked union. Or completely great union. I don't know. Kate dies in Seattle in 1927, but not before she gets a little something off her chest. As the historical marker tells us, she finally confesses to the 47-year-old murder of her 45-year-old mother. She held the secret longer than her mother lived. She can't keep her temper, but she can keep a secret. Here's the thing. Deathbed confessions are great, unless you get hit by a bus. If Kate hadn't died in some prolonged way, would we not know this information? That seems an even worse fate and even more frustrating. Kate's dead body rests next to her husband in Lakeview Cemetery in Seattle, Washington. Must be nice. So where are the bodies buried? In Sioux Falls, we have Mary Egan in Mount Pleasant Cemetery and Thomas Egan at St. Michael's Cemetery. Mary Egan and her eldest son, Sylvester, are beside one another. One of the things that is really getting to me, Thomas Egan, his botched execution for a crime that he didn't commit, and then he was buried in the back corner of a cemetery with no marker for a good bit of time, and then he finally gets a marker. But what unsettles me is that he's not beside his wife. Knowing what we know now, that he didn't kill her, and he was himself a victim of a murderous death, well... Didn't he earn that spot next to his wife and his eldest child? Good husband or not, good father or not, I'm not really sure if I like how all this shook out for Thomas. I visited these cemeteries and I'm happier to report that both graves have nice, beautiful, living plants on them. Maybe they're from a descendant, maybe they're from someone that read a historical marker. 
Quick note, Thomas is easy to find in St. Michael's. He's in Area 16, way in the back, like the back of the cemetery, the back, 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 kind of by like a fence and a house, like he's far away. But Mary took me a while to find. Word to the wise, if you visit Mary Egan, when you drive into the main entrance of Mount Pleasant, take your first left by the big sign and the historical marker that we'll be covering soon. And she is right after the first intersection. Pictures of the grave are also on Local Lou Podcast Instagram. What do you guys think? Are you feeling as frustrated with this one as I am? A little behind-the-scenes info on this episode. I was so excited to get this information out there. I'm recording this after midnight on a work night. My podcast nook just so happens to be a shared wall. So hopefully my neighbor can't hear me or else he thinks I'm up at 2 a.m. talking to myself in the corner, which is literally what I'm doing. If you like this podcast, share it with your friends. Or if you have Apple, rate and review this podcast so others can find it. Speaking of finding things, if you want to connect with me, I'm on Instagram at local Lou Podcast. Don't leave me hanging, but I'm bum. Special thanks to the marvelous Mar for her metaphorical grave digging on this one. As always, thanks to Claude for the theme music, and thank you for listening. Have a great and wonderful day, guys, and see you next time on the Local Lou Podcast.